I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two tip two topics and find intersections. Topics. Or not. Or not. And we are a psychology and history podcast. Did you know that? I did. I remember drawing tarot cards and deciding that that's what was in the future for us that's exactly right just discussing our format and something big has happened i guess by the time that this comes out it it will be be history it will be history and not necessarily new new but new enough because no one has actually paid attention to it but aliens are real aliens are real folks and for those of us who are you know um x-files fanatics (laughs) this is a bfd we fucking knew it Okay. (laughs) We all knew it, low-key. We called it. um, How do you feel about it, I guess? Okay, so let me tell you my experience. Let me set the scene. Um, We were going to Oshkosh. Mm -hmm. And we landed the airplane in a small airport in southern Wisconsin. And we had a two-hour drive. We rented a car up to Oshkosh. Mm -hmm. And Jacob, my brother, goes... Hey, I just want to listen to something real quick on this way up, on the way up. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, sure. What are we listening to? Um, we were listening to the UAP testimonies in front oh. of Congress. <gasps> so the entire way I am listening to these congressmen ask questions of these UAP specialists, the three folks who were interviewed, and it was surprisingly riveting. I bet. Can you give us a synopsis? Sure. So, basically, these three guys, um, two are for, I think two were former military and had actually seen UAPs. One guy had not, but was like, listen, it's true. This is where we're doing all this testing. Mm-hmm. And they kept like asking them questions. Um, I thought so- AOC spoke. I love AOC. Mm-hmm. And AOC was like, what are the key takeaways? Like, what's the most important thing for us to know here? Um, what questions should we be asking? Just great questions all around. Yeah. Um, so synopsis is there was a lot they could not or would not say on the record because of because. confidentiality. Shut because <laughs> so Congress I'm so scared. <laughs> so Congress was like. Um, we need clearance to actually see this evidence and they got denied which means there's definitely something to see because you don't deny if there's nothing to see right no yeah that's like police 101 right exactly so um overall very interesting and they were talking about um these like spheres that one or more of them had seen but they they were like basically these flying spheres that had uh they were clear or semi-clear and had a cube inside of them and they could move and orient and float and go really fast um and it's also been a couple of weeks so that's all that my brain retained wow but basically they're trying to figure out if we can reverse engineer the uaps in order to gain better understanding of the technology and maybe use the technology ourselves um, is the current hypothesis. Do we have any physical evidence of them? 
uh, Congress was not cleared for that information. Got it. Got it. Thank yep. you, Carrie Ann Watkins. Yeah. I appreciate your testimony. <laughs> wow. So it was very cool. Have I talked on the pod about my experience with the light in the sky? No. Okay. So I was when I it was like three exes ago. Okay. And she was house sitting. And mm-hmm. I was over at a house that she was house sitting. She was, was also a shmishmaj shmerishmist. So is this the ex that I sat in the bathtub? Yes. When I came to visit you, both house sitting. But incorrect? it wasn't that house. It was a different different house. house. Different house. Same ex. Same, same ex. concept. Okay. So so um, so she was a massage therapist. Um, a therapist. So she had her massage table set out in the backyard, and she was giving me a massage. And you know, at the end, you flip over, and they work on your shoulders and everything. And I was looking up at the sky, and there was, and it was probably dusk, maybe. Mm-hmm. And there was a light that was like getting brighter and then f- like closer and then farther away. Ooh. And I was like, do you see that? And she was like, yeah, I, I see that. And we just stared at it for like 10 minutes and then it was gone. It was the weirdest thing. It was oh, like a long bizarre. period of time in Greensboro, North Carolina. That's super bizarre. Yeah. Um. So my dad saw something similar when he was flying. He saw it like three times in a row of flying but he was in three different parts of the country. And my dad has seen a lot of shit as a pilot. He's got like 20-something thousand hours in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had zero explanation for this. But it was kind of the same thing, lights going in and out, and then also moving really quickly in the sky. That's a, that's like a key indicator. Yeah. Like it's moving like in a way that's movement. not... Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's wild. Did I tell you about the walk I went on? Gosh, I don't even remember when it was. Sometime between six months and a year ago. We were going on a walk in the morning, and the sun was like right in our face as we were walking. Mm-hmm. And then we turned around, and the sun was also on the other side of the sky. Like there were oh. two suns. Oh, no. That's too many suns. There were too many suns in the sky. There's there were so definitely many. two suns. And so we turned around to look at the sun that had just been in our face, and it was gone. Oh, no. Super creepy. What do you do with that? Tell it to Tell everyone on the podcast. <laughs> what God. else do you do with it? The world is so creepy and weird. Speaking of X-Files, though, I, I can't remember if I've talked about this or not. My memory is terrible. So is mine. I could barely remember the UAP hearing. <laughs> um, and that was just, what, last week, two weeks ago? So I have seven, or I have nine stars on the back of my ear. That's my mm-hmm. first tattoo. I got it on my 18th birthday. And I got it because there were nine seasons of the X-Files. And then what do they do in 2014 or 15 or 16 or whatever, where they come out with this, like, mini-series shit? I was like, what do I do with that? I'm not prepared for this. I got nine thinking this shit was never coming back. Right, right. David and here the we has been very tired. Right. Um. So, but I have not added to it because I am in my 30s now. You're, and, I, and I know better. Right, right. You're true to the original That's as well. correct. That's correct. You are indeed an X-Files nerd. The nerdies yeah. to the nerds. We'll see. Whoever nerded. I have this um, action figure that I've kept in my office for probably 10 years. And it's the smoking man. But he kind of looks like Nixon. So people are like, tell me about your weird action figure <laughs> that you have. And uh, yeah, it totally looks like, like a, some president. But 
No, it's the smoking man from the X-Files. I love that. Yeah. So just starting off with a little bit of history for you. Aliens are real. We're all doomed. Can I tell you the funniest part of this whole alien thing to me? What? No one has cared. I know. Because we all know. Well, I think it's because we all know and because there's so much other shit happening in the world. Like, who has the capacity to care about aliens right now? As long as it's as long as it's not a threat to people, it's it's a very passive right uh, conversation and thought process. Well, I also think like people have made up their minds about aliens. You either believe in them or you don't. And whatever happened in Congress with the hearing does not change whether or not you believe in aliens. That's a really good point. That's, That's my, confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. Which is problematic. Like if we, sure. if we can't adapt to like and I'm saying this even even for for those of us who consider ourselves to be open-minded. Right. I mean, you have to be challenged in order to like actually prove yeah, uh that you're willing to change those opinions depending on what information's available. Well, and research suggests. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the earliest I've gotten to say that in any episode. <laughs> Research suggests that the older you get, the harder it is for you to change your mind about anything. Oh, yeah. Um, And I just, I think you're exactly right. Like, how dangerous is it to get to a certain point and be like, my feelings about aliens, the same. Regardless of information presented, regardless of what Congress says, the literal government is confirming that there are aliens. And there are still people out there who are like, nope, not real. Yeah. Yeah. God didn't invent the aliens. And how do you come back to that? I don't. From that? You can't. I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah, me either. Not that won't hurt anyone's feelings, but. So, speaking of history and weird phenomenon, let me tell you about what I've been binging lately, which is also the segue into my episode. I was about to say great, great transition. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you picked up on it because, you know. So... Okay, so last night, FM and I finished watching Ancient Apocalypse, and we are utterly obsessed. You don't need to super know the premise, but basically it's like 12,000 years ago, ancient civilization. This guy is going to figure out if they were indeed smarter and like more advanced than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. But it's a docuseries. It's based on a true story, which got me to thinking that you and I are kind of two sides of the same coin. You really like reality TV, and I really like documentaries, and both are nonfiction. And I think that that's just life, as we both prefer, like, nonfiction television. It's just mm-hmm. what flavor do we like? I would also just like to say that I do also enjoy a documentary. Oh, I know you do. Yeah, I was just, you know. But I was watching Love After Lockup before you got here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But there's so much that you learn about people and about history through reality TV and documentaries. Mm -hmm. Maybe people, I guess, through reality TVs. I don't know that you you learn much about history through reality TV. Just that people are just the worst. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I went to a few different sources to determine how much television the average American adult watches daily. Oh, my God. So much. Right. Because clearly I'm about to go down a rabbit hole here. The highest number I saw was 294 minutes, which is roughly five hours a day. Hmm. Yep. So, okay. So, six 
Yeah, that checks out. You turn the TV on when you get home from work. And then you watch it. And you turn it off when you go to bed. Yep, yep. Or you turn it off, like, it doesn't go off when you go to bed. And you just keep watching it, right? I go to sleep to friends every night. (laughs) Which I didn't do before I met Ray, by the way. I was a no TV in the bedroom person. I'm a no TV in the bedroom person until I met FM. And now we watch Ancient Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Or Schitt's Creek. Yeah. kind of 50 50 there yeah. we watched it we um we started girlfriends again oh it's so good and it's Aww. really easy to fall asleep to too i don't think i've seen that one it's good i'll have to check it out Sh- fm will know okay so the lowest this is a range so the highest was like five hours from one source um which seemed really high to me though when you put it like you know you turn it on after work and then you watch it till you go to bed makes total sense the lowest was a little still over like two hours Right. So somewhere between like two and a half to five hours right. is what the average American watches every day, which is just yeah. bananas. So two and a half hours is for like the Amish population. Five <laughs> hours is for everybody else. Yeah. So, um, of course, there was a spike in watching TV during the pandemic. Um, but we can learn a lot about our culture through understanding what we watch on TV and how it impacts us socially and psychologically. And this is primarily because psychology was considered when developing TV shows. So, like, TV Mm. shows are meant to, like, draw you in and, like, keep you interested. There's always something you can watch. Um, Netflix especially does, I think, they were kind of the first to do this really great job of having something for everyone. Oh, yeah. Like, TLC prior to that, or prior to Netflix and having, like, all these different options you would have to have different channels so disney was for like the kids and then mm-hmm. tlc was where you went for your reality shows mm-hmm. and then there were news stations but you would have to flip back and forth right anyways so what we what we're learning is that human interactions like the ones we have with friends family co-workers classmates and peers can be strongly influenced by what we watch on television So the whole thought process was based on an article I read a while back about the Muppets. And the Muppets recently had a character who was introduced on the show who had been diagnosed with autism. Do you remember this? No. No. Okay. So I'm not up on my Muppets. I'm so sorry. (sighs) That's disappointing. I know. I think her name is Abby. I'll have to go back and confirm. But they have a character who is diagnosed with autism, is aware that she has autism, Mm They're like, so 70 to 80% of children who are diagnosed with autism are male. Mm -hmm. Like it's pretty rare statistically for women or girls to have autism. So the Muppets went out of their way. They made sure it was a female character to like demonstrate what autism can look like and dispel any myths that, you know, I, we just think autism may look different in girls than boys anyways. About the same time, they introduced a character who was experiencing homelessness, mm-hmm. other than Oscar the Grouch, because for say. me, he had checked that box. Yeah, that's fair. But apparently, this new character character is like a young Muppet who is intentionally setting out to provide representation for the homeless, houseless population. So I did a little digging, and according to Project Hope, the number of children with autism and the United States is 1 in 36. Autism rates have tripled in the past 16 years. Oh, wow. And this data was looking at specifically 8-year-old children who have 
who had a diagnosis in 2020. Um, but this is not necessarily because more children have autism, though that is possible. Mm-hmm. But also, it's how professionals are evaluating and diagnosing individuals. Right. So, number of children with autism has skyrocketed. Looking at homelessness, there are two definitions of homelessness. One is absolute homelessness, like literally living on the street. The other is the McKinney-Vento definition, which says that homelessness is defined as individuals who lack fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. Um, And this can include shared housing, for example, motels, hotels, camping grounds, emergency and transitional shelters, or who are abandoned in hospitals. A primary primary residence that is not intended to be used as a regular sleeping accommodation for human beings Mm -hmm. so those living in cars parks public spaces abandoned buildings substandard housing um, bus or train stations Um, and by definition so uh, this next statistic should shock you and I really hope it does Approximately one in every 30 American children goes to sleep annually under this definition of homelessness. One in 30? One in 30. Oh, my God. That's approximately 2.5 million children. (gasps) That is tragic. I know. This is important because it's more prevalent than we think. Like, Well, yes. Right. However, I can't think of a single television show from our childhood that has a child who is experiencing homelessness or who has been diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. Sesame yeah. Street is now like tackling both topics yeah. at the same time. Occasionally, you might see a person with a disability on a TV show, like when we were growing up, but they were rarely, if ever, a main character. Sure. So, what research has shown about television is that they're like two conflicting, sort of conflicting schools of thought. One, television reflects our values. So each generation has different values. Television changes to reflect those values. However, Mm -hmm. research also shows that it can influence the way that children and young adults are developing their values and morals. That ties in with my topic, actually. I was hoping it would. And it does. And it does. Because that's the point of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So experts believe that television can be just as big of an influence on us as humans and how we interact um, as it does have a profound impact on our psychology. It can alter the way that we think about society and culture, and it was designed to do this. Television plays a role in how we view gender, race, and class. And like when we talked about the Bechdel test, we were talking Mm -hmm. about like seeing women mm-hmm. who have names oh who talk to each who other talk to each other about something other than men yeah and that impacts our psychology as women and it also impacts the psychology of other people who are not women um who are seeing like women having these trains of thought otherwise mm-hmm. you are only ever seeing women who don't have well-developed characters talk about men anyways Seeing children or Muppets portrayed positively living with diverse experiences not only provides windows for youth not experiencing those things, but provides mirrors for the youth who are. So we're going to talk about windows and mirrors real quick. Oh. So children need to be surrounded by windows and mirrors. Windows allow children to see how other people live and hopefully through repeated positive exposure helps them become more tolerant and accepting. Mirrors show you things about yourself. You and I talked about this with the L word. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we saw it for the first time late teens, right? I think I was early 20s. Okay. I, I never saw it when it was on air. I saw oh, okay. it on DVD. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. So the show is problematic, but it was the first show that showed us queer adults who were mostly happy. They had jobs. They, they were had successful. friends. They were super successful. Their queerness wasn't their entire identity. It was just one facet. True. And that was the first mirror for me of seeing that. Like, mm-hmm. there what? I mean, we've talked about Harvey Milk being a mirror for young kids of like, he's yep. a queer politician um, who had an untimely end, but was a queer politician. Um, but like those things weren't widely broadcast when we were coming up. So until then, I had never been given that mirror. We talked about that. But what I had seen up to that point through social interactions with friends was were people who had made being queer their entire identity because we didn't know how not to, right? So uh-huh. like that's the importance in media of having these mirrors and windows because if we're relying purely on social interaction, sometimes like it takes a while to figure things out. Mm-hmm. So by having queer media or media that demonstrates or positively reflects um, folks with disabilities or different races, different genders. Well, an example or a role model. Right. Even or if different, they're not directly right. related or known to you. Exactly. Like, there, there can be a really positive benefit there. Unfortunately, TV can also promote dangerous stereotypes, not only in the news, but also when TV shows or movies are being created for entertainment and not education. TV can perpetuate racist, ableist, gendered, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, all the phobics, mm-hmm. stereotypes. And we love a study. So, oh. of course, I had to go find a study. Hit me with your pet shark. Thank you so much. A study that examined the values and themes in popular television from 1967 through 2007 found that old shows exalted benevolence, self-acceptance, community, and tradition. Like, those were the values that were being exhibited in TV shows in the 1960s and 70s. Um, Modern TV shows, so the study stops in 2007. I couldn't find anything much newer than that. Um, though I'm going to assume that this continues. Um, the number one value was fame. Oh, I never thought of that as a value. I hadn't either. So, But, oh, but could we be looking through those experiences through the lens of, like, trying <coughs> to, to be successful? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think financial s- stability and success is one of the values that's also really high beginning Mm -hmm. in 2007, but certainly continuing on. So we're going to do a real quick historical roll call for the ideas of the 1960s and 70s through some of those old TV shows. So benevolence, meaning like just kind, generous, like good to other people, self-acceptance, community, and tradition. TV shows that might remind you of this are Andy Griffith, Mm -hmm. I Love Lucy, Happy Days, The Brady Bunch, Scooby-Doo came around a little bit later, but kind of still embodied a lot of those traditional values. Those remind me, I mean, the the thing, the, the common thread between all those in my mind is that things happen, but nothing happens. It's like a safe, it's a safe space where there's lessons to be learned, but nothing bad ever happens. Right. Yeah. And it's this idea that like community and tradition keep you safe. Hmm. 
right? Like, mm-hmm. Andy Griffith, I think, is a prime example of, like, stay with community, stay with tradition, we'll accept you even when you're quirky, um, but you know, be good. be a good person. For a cop, he doesn't interact a lot with crime. No, that's because nothing happens in Mayberry. Right. Right. And for those of you who don't know, we live by a very small town that... Called Mount Airy. Called Mount Airy. Which rhymes with Mayberry. Which has basically turned itself into a Mayberry... Well, it's the town that Mayberry was based off of. Right. And so it's... It has become that, where there's like the soda shops and the... Yeah. And the cop guy who handcuffs you. You can go there for pictures. Mm -hmm. It's very cute. Mm -hmm. It's a great little town. Um, In 2007, we're in the heyday of American Idol. Oh, my God. And Hannah Montana. Can I talk about that Clay Aiken lost and I was in the sixth grade. (laughs) You sound like you're about to cry. Never recovered. (laughs) Because it was rigged. It was rigged for sure. Yeah. Yep. Although I, lo- I love Ruben as well, but he just that wasn't, was, as, wasn't as good as Closeted Clay. No, but that was like the rivalry of our generation. Oh, my God. Also, Clay's from our like state. I know. He's from Raleigh. We love that. And he should have won. He should have won. And um, what's the host called? Ryan Seacrest is like... I can't believe how, like, successful he is. I know. He does so much. He is... I mean, he's a producer on the Kardashians. So, is like, he really? He never has to work again. What? I know. Fascinating. Well, he certainly achieved fame, which is what we're about to be talking about. <laughs> um, reality shows really, like, rise in the early 2000s and, of course, have continued. So, in this study, two shows were picked per decade to be evaluated. The shows that were picked were popular for 9 to 11-year-olds each decade from 1967 to 2007. And they were evaluated for 16 values, including community feeling, spiritualism, tradition, popularity, etc. These values were ranked for each decade. So, quote-unquote, community feeling was number one. It was like the value that was demonstrated in all these shows yeah. in 1967, 77, and 97. Ooh. But by 2007, it had fallen to number 11. Okay. So I would postulate that it's probably continued to fall. Like the sense of community, you just don't see in young shows today. Well, that the way relates that you did. to... I mean, now living in the suburbs, which I haven't since 2007-ish, 2009. Yeah, I mean, the the neighborhood, like, there's not kids on the street anymore. There's, there's, it, it has a different feel to me as an adult. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to someone recently who has a couple of kids and lives in a nice little neighborhood. And she um, has really gotten to know all of her neighbors and like has they've exchanged phone numbers and she can text them and say hey have you seen my kids like they're out playing somewhere i can't mm-hmm. find them but that's unheard of these days like when my partner's kids go out and play we don't have neighbors to go like we stalk their dot on their phones <laughs> yeah but we don't like have neighbors that we call like hey have you seen the kids yeah it's just oh really hope they're making good decisions yeah 
I would have to bribe my child to go outside. We have such different children. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. My neighbor my neighbor didn't even realize that, that he, he was, was here. here. That's hilarious. He like, doesn't go outside. Can I tell... So, I love how active all three of ours are. Mm-hmm. But I would really love to have, like, a crafty kid who wants to, like, stay home, watch movies, and just knit with oh. me. Well, they're too young for knitting, but... That's fair. In good time. In good time. Jaden and I painted the other night. That's so cute. Mm-hmm. What'd you paint? Well, from the looks of it, it looked like he painted the Antichrist, but apparently <laughs> it, it was some character of something. <laughs> <coughs> he literally painted this thing that looked like the John Wayne Gacy um, clown. Oh, my And I told Ray, I was like, we got to watch out for this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. You've got a weird kid. I know. He's great. <laughs> okay. So, um, by 2007, the top five values demonstrated in TV shows were fame, achievement, popularity, image, and financial success. With the rise of, like, YouTubers and this uh, influencer culture. Yeah. I feel like all of these things are probably still in the top five. Yeah. If you're looking at all media. Researcher Patricia Greenfeld is a psychology professor at UCLA who conducted this study. And she said, quote, the rise of fame in preteen television may be one influence in the documented rise of narcissism in our culture. Mm. Popular television shows are part of the environment that causes the increased narcissism, but they also reflect this culture. So in 2009, Jean Twinage and W. Keith Campbell published, quote, The Narcissism Epidemic, which is a haunting diagnostic de- diagnostic detailing a gradual a haunting diagnostic detailing a gradual but seismic shift in the nation's cultural norm towards self-admiration. Though mm. certainly not all consequences of he- heightened self-esteem are negative, the cultural phenomenon was described as destructive to American society at an extreme, demanding the reciprocity that binds families and communities and encouraging divisive, antisocial, short-term behaviors over long-term collective decision-making. Ooh. So, like, each generation is kind of known for something different, right? Like, the boomers versus the Gen X versus millennials. It went from being a very collectivist society, and now we're kind of swinging towards this individualistic. Yeah. I, th- I wonder if that me- if that's just because it doesn't, a lot of the ways that you make money now don't have to necessarily rely on other people. Potentially, yeah. But also, how's that impacting how we make decisions to benefit other people? Yeah. Like, will our social systems stand in the face of a society that genuinely believes that everyone is on their own yeah yeah just we're doomed either way aliens are real basically it's just a matter of time and at this point (laughs) we might be hoping for them so in 1997 the top five values were community feeling benevolence image tradition and self-acceptance and what were some popular kids tv shows in 1997 we should think of Recess. Mm. Boy Meets Recess. World. Boy Meets World. Franklin. Power Rangers. Uh, Teletubbies was really big for oh. like little, little people. Tinky Winky. Dipsy. <laughs> I don't remember the rest of it. La La and Motherfucking Poe. <laughs> 
um, benevolence had dropped to the 12th spot while financial success went from being 12th in 1967 and 1997 to 5th in 2007. Um, The rise in consumerism feels really obvious since the generation that was raising our parents in the 1960s or those who grew up during the Great Depression and were like continuing to pinch pennies. Like financial success was having food on the table a lot of the time um, and having some form of a savings. Our parents were removed from that, so their values were slightly different and financial success would have been stressed differently. But now our generation is raising kids that are even further removed. However, looking at our economy lately is just a different tangent. Like all of the things that have impacted the way that we parent and the way that children are raised really from 2000 to now the past 23 years so much is different than how we were raised and these are all are these all scripted tv shows that are in the are they're just the most they were the most popular shows so like they included american idol okay right right, as one of the two shows that they were looking at interesting well to be fair there's a shift in what people like to watch i mean people a lot of it's game shows so much is game shows so much is about winning and losing right about improvement about i mean look at hgtv like you talked about before i mean a channel that didn't exist um now is about dollars and cents and what you can get for it yeah so in a way it's teaching people more about money but there is an unrealistic expectation as far as like what is achievable, right? For exactly. the majority of us, exactly. I mean, they have Molly, who's a butterfly catcher and thirty-two years old and yeah. wants to, and Brendan, the kindergarten teacher, and their budget is two hundred <laughs> million dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the two least emphasized values in two thousand and seven were butterfly catcher. Sorry. <laughs> The two least emphasized values in 2007 were spiritualism, which came in at number 16, and tradition, which came in at number 15. Tradition had previously ranked in number four um, in 1997. So it dropped like over 10 places in less than 10 years. I wonder if that's because so many more shows now have representation of like the non-nuclear family i think that that probably has a lot to and do we're with just it. like trying to do the best we can yeah yeah but I, so i think that that's a lot of it right like there have been dramatic cultural shifts in the u.s i have my pasta like use spaghetti fingers <laughs> so um we had this huge cultural shift from 1997 to the early 2000s till now and tradition just isn't valued the way that it used to be. Spiritualism isn't valued the way that it used to be. In fact, finding TV shows that talk about spiritualism is really difficult these days. And not saying that it was ever huge, but you used to see people like praying on television. Now it was typically Christian. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think I've ever seen a TV show of anyone praying. I've seen like kids tv shows where there's students wearing hijabs or something like that that would indicate that they're non-christian but anyway spiritualism just isn't seen as a value in a lot of these tv shows so researchers analyzed um, nielsen demographic data to determine the most popular shows with 9 to 11 year olds 
and then conducted a survey of 60 participants ages 18 to 59 to determine how important each value was in the episodes of the various shows. Quote, the biggest change occurred from 1997 to 2007 when YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter exploded in popularity. The lead researcher um, said, who is also from UCLA, their growth parallels the rise in narcissism and the drop in empathy among college students in the United States, which is consistent with other research. So YouTube, Facebook, Twitter hit the scene, and all of a sudden we're seeing this like immense spike in narcissism and like steep drop in empathy. Mm, it's the empathy for me. That sucks. Right. Quote, we don't think this is a coincidence, they said. Changes have been seen in narcissism and empathy, and they're now being reflected on television. So how do we reckon this? We obviously don't want narcissism to be on the rise, and we can only begin to imagine the impact of a growing population exhibiting narcissistic traits. But we love TV. And TV is not entirely the culprit. Like we've already, we just mentioned there's other like social media that might be playing a key role in this. But we're also wired to love TV. Like going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, dopamine is a chemical that is produced in our brain and it's responsible for our feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. When something makes us feel pleasured, satisfied, pleasured and satisfied, dopamine is released and tells us we enjoy it. Since children and adults watch TV as a form of pleasure and enjoyment, dopamine is released in the brain. Their brains feel happy and satisfied and keeps them wanting more. This high can feel like an addiction once our brains feel it and continue to crave it. So it's about what we watch or at least being aware. We are all susceptible to the messaging that we see on television, watching things that have values aligned with what we want to see mirrored in ourselves or in others is really important. It isn't just seeing mirrors of ourselves and what we want for our lives, but knowing our values and watching things that align with our values and certainly encouraging that with our kids. We won't get into it today, but talking about the news that we take in and the sources where we get our news is also super relevant to this topic. During the past few decades, mass media coverage has gone beyond swaying public opinion through mere imagery. Trusted centrist voices such as like Walter Cronkite, who was known for his impartial reporting and some of the biggest news stories in the 1960s, have been replaced by highly politicized news. Um, on cable channels such as like the super conservative Fox News or the super liberal MSNBC. As broadcasters narrow their focus to cater to more specialized audiences, viewers choose to watch the networks that suit their political bias. Middle of the road networks like CNN, which aim for nonpartisanship, frequently lose ratings to the wars against like the polar opposites, both of which have fierce groups of supporters. As one reporter put it, quote, a small partisan base is enough for big ratings. The mildly interested middle might rather watch Grey's Anatomy, mm. which wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? Critics argue that partisan news networks cause viewers to have less understanding of, oppo of opposing political opinions, opposing political <laughs> opinions, making them more polarized. And that's all I'll say about the news. But it's interesting that we're seeing this play out not just with kids and like nine to 11 year old TV, which is what started the conversation, 
but we're seeing it with like little little kids and the Muppets and we're seeing it now as adults in our news coverage right like we're seeing things that are either aligning with our morals and values and helping us to see things in an unbiased and kind of objective way like what is life around us or we are like leaning more into the maybe the clickbaity right, things of the media that. or um like the the bias news that confirms what we're already believing mm-hmm. like about the aliens i wonder yeah i mean it seems like tv is keeping up with current uh i don't even know how to, current morals but i mean would you agree well, it just, it's like the, whether the chicken or the egg came first. Right. We don't is know it, if it's people influencing the media or the other way around. Or media influencing the people or both. Mm-hmm. I mean, things are different. There's no way to shake it. Yeah. I think something that's unique about our generation is that there is lack of understanding about why do I have to do things the way they've always been done. Right. If it doesn't make sense to me. Absolutely. And there definitely is a sense of entitlement, I think, that comes with that. Yeah. Um, just, you know, feeling entitled to choose that for yourself. Oh, I totally um, agree. And, and sometimes that comes with the lack of understanding of the consequences. But in other ways, also, um, you know, that's just the future right. of the world, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of my questions is, especially for, like, kids programming, um... You know, who or what um, what is our, like, obligation to kids to provide them with, like, non-stereotyped, neutral um, TV shows that have certain values? Or is there any obligation? Is it about what's going to get the most kids and families to watch? Or is it that we do indeed have some like obligation to the n- next generation to not necessarily emphasize fame and money over everything else? Though we know that that benefits our economy. That benefits, like, that's what's in line with what they see around them and what they right. see from their friends. And it's just reinforcing, like, all the all the things. Well, fame has been to- a top priority forever. It's just that it seems much more accessible now. So Ooh, that's a good point. Like while Hannah Montana is about, you know, a young pop star, it's layering, you know, what the audience wants to see, but at the same time, it's layering in all those other, uh, you know, lessons. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So I think it could be both, and I don't know if you are familiar with Bluey. I am obsessed with Bluey. Okay. So I watched Bluey for the first time in Austin with my sister and young Theodore. Oh, my I gosh. was like, this is it. It is. This is it. Listen, so me, my partner, and the girls will like sit down and intentionally just watch Bluey together. So comforting. The girls will call me into the room to watch Bluey with them. And it's like, these are 10 year olds. Yeah. And they love Bluey. Bluey is wholesome. For those of you who don't know what Bluey is, run, don't walk. Is it? It's all. It's Australian, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Yep. What network? I don't even know where they were um, watching it. Is it? Let me find out. But it's about you know it's a uh, it's a two it's a parents it's a mom and a dad and they're two girls. Um, but golly, it's just like the best parenting styles and the best lessons to learn. It's on Disney Plus. It's on Disney Plus. So yeah, I read somewhere that Bluey is the most well disguised parenting show there ever was. Like it's you you think you're watching this like cute little tv show that's about bluey and her sister and their friends and there's so many good parenting tips like there's so many ways to like bluey is like a quirky kid and um like they just handle bluey so well Mm -hmm. and they handle bingo so well and you know they're just great parents so it's just good parenting stuff too so the takeaway from this episode is to go watch Bluey immediately. <laughs> Stop what you're doing. Oh God, TV is so weird, and I love it so much. Um, I can already point out some intersections here as you eat your pickle. Good. I keep like moving away from the microphone I so know. that no one will hear me with my pickle. They'll still hear you, but it's a charcuterie board day. It's a charcuterie. A charcuterie um, board. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are talking about the Brothers Grimm. Interesting. All right, let's let's do it. Okay, so tell us the horrible things about the Brothers Grimm. (laughs) So I personally hope that Walt Disney set up some type of fund or some residual something uh, to pass on to the descendants of the brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. Uh, Because they create, well, they didn't create, but they compiled some of the most famous you know, stories and characters that have essentially mm-hmm. built the American culture. And they also have a great last name. And they should get props just for having the last name Grimm. And it's their real last name. Is it really? Yes. I actually just kind of assumed that they chose it. No, I know. I did too. But no, it's it's the real... It is their real name. I love that even more. So the folklore that they published includes Cinderella, the Frog Prince... Hansel und Gretel, The Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, Rumpelstiltskin, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, and I could go on and on and on, but super famous. Basically, Walt Disney would not be Walt Disney without the Brothers Grimm. And Hans Christian Andersen's the other guy, right? Like, those are the big... What did he do? Hans Christian Andersen did... I didn't do no research on Hans. He did The Little Mermaid. Oh, okay. He did The Little Mermaid, Thumpelina, and The Snow Queen, which was later Frozen. Oh, got it. So they're like the two big Disney movie people. Historical people. Got it. Okay. Well. Now you know. Now the more we know. So the Brothers Grimm, their first book for children stories was published in 1812. Shit. I know. It's a long time ago. (laughs) Do you have a copy? No, but I will accept one if you'd like to give me one. I might have two. Oh, I would prefer an original copy from the from 1812. From 1812, I'll see what I can do. Okay, I'll check Ed McKay's next to him there. Thanks so much. 
So Jacob Ludwig Carl Grimm was born on January 4th. 1785. What? I know. Hey, birthday twin. That's my birthday. I was also born in 1785. I moisturize <laughs> like crazy. Here's the here's the other crazy thing is that Wilhelm, <coughs> his brother, was born on February 24th, which is my mom's birthday. <gasps> I know. A year later. Oh 1786. I know. So are we reincarnated? So they have a Capricorn and a Pisces writing stories together. Exactly. So they were born in the Holy Rom- Roman, I almost said Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire <laughs> in present day Germany. So they're, they're, they're German through and through. And a lot of what they attempt to do during their career is to um, document German tradition. Mm-hmm. Their dad was a jurist, which is basically like a legal scholar. I had to look that up. Um and their mom was, quote, the daughter of a city councilman. So he's a jurist. She's the daughter of a city councilman. Who also did great things in her own right, I'm sure. But they were undocumented because she was a woman. Correct. They were the second and third eldest surviving siblings in a family of nine children. Three of those children, unfortunately, died in infancy, which, of course, is tragic, but also very common at the time. In 1791, the family moved to the countryside and they became prominent members in the community. They had a huge house surrounded surrounded by lands and rolling hills, and they were educated at home by private tutors. And they were also brought up Lutheran. Fancy. Later, they would attend like a one-room schoolhouse, Mm -hmm. um, but not until they were a little bit older. But in 1796, their father passed away causing a huge financial strain on the family. Their mother was forced to, quote, relinquish the servants and large house, depending on financial support from her father and sister, who was then the first lady-in-waiting of the court of William I. So they they lost all their, their own money. Um, and Jacob Grimm, at, who was 11 at the time, was now required to assume the adult responsibilities of the head of the household. An 11-year-old. An 11-year-old, which is really hard to do. Yeah. 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 It's not ideal. It Uh, was mm -mm. a long time ago. It was a long, long time ago. So in 19, or excuse me, in 1798, he attended a public school at Friedrich Gymnasium in Kassel? Kassel? Unclear. Which was actually arranged and paid for by their aunt, which was nice. So they did have some like some assistance. They come from the money to get to get through school. Shortly after, unfortunately, their grandfather passed away, which again left them without a lot of providers in the family. So they had they uh, Jacob had to step up again. The two brothers were very close. And they differed in temperament. So Jacob was kind of introspective and kind of quiet. And Wilhelm was outgoing, although he suffered from a lot of health issues. So he was hospitalized for some of his childhood and, and was kind of bedridden. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he kind of tried to overcome that with trying to read a lot and trying to be as, as, as smart and sharp as he could be. Sure. They both had a strong work ethic and excelled in their studies. In Kessel, they became 
acutely aware of the fact that they were of a lower social status than some of the other highborn children in the area. So there was a little bit more preferential treatment for the folks who were able to give more to the schools that they were going to um, so that they did not feel like they had a hop- an upper hand in their education. The brothers studied medieval German literature, which is like so specific. That is super specific. Super specific. Uh, but Jacob, of course, the oldest, again, was b- responsible for financially providing for his family. He was forced to abandon his studies because of the extreme poverty that his family was experiencing. So extreme, in fact, that the portions were described as, quote, we five people at only three portions, or excuse me, we five people ate only three portions and only once a day. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Quote, Jacob found full-time employment in 1808 when he was appointed court librarian in the king of Westphalia and went on to become a librarian in Kaisal. After their mother's death that year, he became fully responsible for his younger siblings. Poor Jacob. This poor guy. He had a rough go of it. He arranged and paid for his brother Ludwig's studies at art school and for Wilhelm's um, extended visit to Hale to seek treatment for heart and respiratory ailments. Um, After Wilhelm was feeling a little bit better, he joined Jacob as a librarian. Um, So they were both librarians, which is like super wholesome. That's really sweet. When they were in school studying medieval German literature, they had a professor who they very much enjoyed who could encourage them, you know, who would encourage them to write, research, and collect folk tales. Ooh. So as they became, you know, librarians, it it didn't pay a ton, but it did give them plenty of time to do their folklore research. um, And they experienced a really productive few years, and they published their first works. I think this is without a doubt the most wholesome story you've told two brothers orphaned one mm-hmm. sickly the other one's taking care of everything they work together as librarians which is adorable it is cute and in their free time they collect stories they collect stories yes how sweet except that those stories involve things like eyes being gouged out correct. and toes being cut off correct yeah we'll get into a little bit more of of what we do and don't know about their stories um but in 1812, they published their first volume of 86 folk tales called Kinder und Hausaufmachen. And they followed this quickly with two volumes of German, German legends and a volume of early liter- literature history. They were just the biggest nerds you, you'd, you'd ever seen. I love that. They also went to publish pieces about Danish and Irish folktales and uh, mythology. They were very interested in the history and they wanted to document everything that was like really specific to the area that they lived. And their works became uh, so widely recognized and the brothers received honorary doctorates from three universities. Damn. These are like big, it's like Berlin, it's like big German universities. So before we get into the fairy tales, it's really important to note that the Brothers Grimm set out to write a German dictionary. So not only did they collect these folklores, they were also working on like the most boring book you've ever heard. 
<laughs> this was a project that took them to the end of their lives. And I am skipping ahead a little bit, but we're not going to come back to it. So I just wanted to make sure that we, sure. we, we noted that uh, they were working on this dictionary, which had like syn- synonyms, antonyms, you know, using words and sentences. And I believe that they only got to letter E. Oh, my before gosh. they died, and and then people took it from there and kind of ran right, with it. Right. So the it, the series did finish, but not by them. Was it like um, the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, or was it like just a standard dictionary? It was pretty standard. It okay. wasn't anything weird and creepy. They never had the intention of writing these horrible stories, you know. And basically, you know, they were taking stories that already existed and writing them down right so they did have the very unique opportunity to twist and change them um and they had several different versions of their of the stories Mm -hmm. um that changed over time and we'll kind of we'll kind of get into that now um so we know that there is ultimately an evolution over time Um, The original story tales are dark and full of blood, death, and horror. For example, in the original Frog Princess, the princess does not kiss the frog, but instead she throws the frog against a brick wall and kills him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's much darker than I expected. One of the lesser known stories is called The Goose Girl. In this story, a servant girl is stripped naked and stuffed into a barrel filled with nails where she is rolled down the street and the nails impale her. (laughs) What's the moral of that story? Rapunzel, which you, of course, we're all familiar with. Sure. She has a sexual relationship with the white knight that saves her in the original story. Oh. A little bit more. Mm. A little bit more extra. She's like, thank you so much for saving me. <laughs> Hansel and Gretel, which we all know is, that's like the most fucked up story, I think. Right. that they That's always maintained its like, roots. Yeah. I mean, we know, you know, there's a stepmom and a woodcutter father, and he they abandon their children in the woods, and then the children find their way back, and then they get abandoned again, and then they find... A gingerbread house, which is what it's evolved to, but originally in the in the OG version, the house is made of bread, hmm. and the roof is made of cake. See, I would be much more likely to go into a house made of bread and cake than I would of candy or gingerbread. Of gingerbread. I mean, gingerbread is so specific. Yeah. Very specific. Um but yeah, this whole story is like I mean, you know, the the the, the witch gets pushed into the Oven. oven and she's gonna eat them that to me holds true to it's like original yeah, yeah. you know nobody she, like tries to plumpen them up and then and that's why there's been no disney movies created out of it <laughs> it's important to note that the evolution of these stories happened during the multiple publications of the brothers grim fairy tales but also way after yeah quote the story of little red riding hood's history is an interesting one. The story is told on every continent and in every major language. In the earliest written version of this tale, Red Riding Hood strips off her clothes, gets into bed with the wolf, and dies. That's it. 
That's she it. just dies. She dies. Huh. This is quite obviously a lot different than the story told where she keeps on her clothes. Right, right. And then is later saved by the woodsman. All versions featured some sort of moral, right? They're, it's all about learning a lesson. Sure. For and this early version, the lesson was to teach women that men can be immoral. But women should not. Correct. Later on, the moral will shift to the opposite side of this. So when the woodsman is introduced in order to save her at the end of the story, the moral switches into a more positive one. So good men can save a woman from one of those immoral men. Right. That right. becomes more of the, the lens. But regardless, the woman has no autonomy or self-determination. Like, it's all about either the man saving her or... Her being taken advantage Her being yeah, taken advantage yeah, of. Yeah, she's a victim. Yeah. Pretty much through and through. The main character encourages a second wolf... Or, hold on. In one of the versions entitled Little Red Cap, the main character incur- encounters a second wolf on the road... And goes on her way without talking to him because she's learned her lesson. You don't engage. Don't talk to the wolf. The wolf later pretends to be Little Red Cap to the grandfather. Or, excuse me, the grandmother. So, Little Red Riding Hood. Sure, sure. Um, Unbeknownst to the wolf, Red Cap was already inside her grandmother's house. And they lure the wolf to a trough outside using the smell of sausage and he drowns himself. Well, that's a fun ending. Mm-hmm. Lots of death. <coughs> Cinderella, I think, is a really famous one. We kind of know a little bit more about yeah. that one. Cinderella is one of the oldest fairy tales ever told. I had no idea. It's like the Beowulf of fairy tales. The Beowulf of fairy tales. It started as the Greek tale of Rhodopis, an enslaved girl who married the king of Egypt. Over time, the story changed, and then the Grimm brothers were introduced to offer a significant, significantly different view. In their version, she's known as Ash Girl, or the Cinder Girl, which transitions into Cinderella. Right. And instead of a fairy godmother, she has a magic tree that gives her whatever she needs, such as a ball gown and her golden slippers. Kind of a la Pocahontas. Or a la the... Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Right, right. Yeah. But, like, Grandmother Willow was the yeah, tree yeah. in Pocahontas. These golden slippers were made of a different material and many different versions of the story. The slippers actually start as fur, which in French is ver. Probably pronouncing that really bad. Um, it is possible that the reason children today grew up with the Cinderella having a glass slipper is because the French word for glass is... V-E-R-R-E, mm-hmm. which could be fur, like ver, fur. There could be have been a, an sure, evolved sure. translation, right? The Disney version of Cinderella is incredibly different from the previously written tales. This concept is especially prominent in what happens to her stepsisters. In the Grimm Brothers version, they both cut off parts of their feet in order to fit into the slipper. Which, made out of glass or fur, would have been a really bad idea. 
Oh, 100%. Glass, you're going to see all the yeah. all the blood. Fur. Uh-huh. Ooh. I know. No, it's, no matter how you slice it, it's not <laughs> good. The prince doesn't actually notice that they've cut off their parts of their feet um, until two pigeons sitting on a bush tell him. Well, Which he... does have some Disney characteristics. <laughs> right. At the end of the story, the two pigeons peck off both of the sisters' eyes out. Yep. This, of course, complete, is completely different from the Disney version. Disney simply excludes the sisters after a certain point in the story. Using the tale of Cinderella as a reference, the timeline of the change of fairy tales from adults only into a more kid-friendly stories can be seen. Yep. The values and concepts that these stories deal with have changed over time in a more positive message. Snow White was an interestingly vast number or excuse me snow white has an interestingly vast number of different works from which to look to um she has many different names such as maria godtree and an italian version she's known even like she doesn't even have a name every version of the story seems like an entirely different work The main plot points aren't even recognizable when comparing versions, except for that a wicked woman tries to kill her. What about, like, the seven dwarves? Does that not translate from language to language or story to story? No, totally not. The only thing that's in common is that a wicked woman tries to kill her, Snow White dies, and then she's raised from the dead. Got it. It's like an Easter story, almost. (laughs) Um, In some versions, such as the Scottish version, she dies more than once. Most older versions of the story, other than the Grimm's brothers, do not even feature the seven dwarves. The closest to this is an Italian version that features seven robbers. I could see how we would get there. Yeah, sure. Sure. Since the dwarves were added as the stories were being written down by the brothers Grimm, it can be inferred that they were added in order to lighten up the story for children's ears. Um, in Edgar Taylor's transition or translation, excuse me, in 1823, Snow White is instead named Snowdrop, which I kind of like. Adorable. It's cute. Snowdrop, and she softened and she softened the content. Oh, sorry, and he softened the content even more. Another interestingly. Or another interesting anomaly when considering the Grimm's brothers' translation is that they they stated that her mother died in childbirth. From a Disney perspective, there's a lot of dead parents. Specifically dead moms. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. lot of stepmoms, a lot of dead moms. A lot of, a lot of dead parents. Um, the antagonist is represented as her stepmother. However, before this translation, it was Snow White's biological mother who was the antagonist, which from our perspective as both step parents. Sure, sure. I, you know, I just don't, I don't love that stigma. I don't either. I think we're pretty great. I think we, yeah, we're fun. We're so fun. Funny. Funny, less likely to give poisoned apples. Sure. Approachable. Right. Some might say. We do not have favorites. Mm-mm. I only have one, so. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't have favorites. 
So again, this change might have been made in order to slightly soften uh, the tale for the for the children. Today, fairy tales are ch are changing even more than previously with uh, oral tradition. With the introduction of Disney movies like Shrek and Red Riding Hood, we have the ability to immediately present a drastically new way to view old stories and old characters. Disney is renowned for delivering fairy tales to children through movies or television, like up there. Right, right. They definitely put their own spin on those tales, just as the Grimm brothers did in the past. Throughout history, these tales have been making slight changes after slight changes and slowly gearing themselves towards children. The outlandish changes that they make, such as changing the classic Don Quixote, Don Quixote into Shrek, the ogre, which I didn't even realize until... I actually didn't either, and that totally makes I'm sense. embarrassed to admit that because it totally makes sense. Oh my god, that totally makes sense. All right, Don Quixote. Okay. Um, but the introduction of movies allows very large and bizarre changes. End quote. So again, people. Uh, I mean, stories change throughout time, regardless. And oral tradition is so interesting too. Oh yeah. Like you ever tell a story and then it just snowballs from there my mom has never met a story she couldn't make better through embellishment oh 100 and that's just kind of the family mantra whenever mom starts telling a story we mm -hmm. just know you just know we just know okay they get better every time it's great I, yeah you ever heard somebody <laughs> tell a story and you're like i was there and it was not like that <laughs> so over time the fairy tales you know began to take a different meaning and different cultures took the stories in their own directions some not so great Sure, sure. Qu quote, in Nazi Germany, the Grimm stories were used to foster nationalism as well as to promote anti-Semitic sentiments in an increasingly hostile time for Jewish people. Of course they were. Some examples of notable anti-Semitic works in the Grimm's bibliography are, quote, The Girl Who Was Killed by Jews, The Jew's Stone, The Jews Among Thrones, and The Good Bargain. The girl who was killed by Jews and the Jew stone tell stories of blood, blood libel by Jews against innocent children. It, the names feel very on the nose and as yeah. though they aren't trying to deny it at all. Well, they're also translated. Um, and, oh, okay. And we'll go over, but I mean, you're not wrong. Um, we'll go over some of the, um, the names of their, their works. A lot of them are like, the girl in the barrel the right lady who went to the store i mean it's just like you know it is it's like friends it's like the one where monica blah 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 they wrote down the the stories they weren't like tasked with create like they were collecting these stories correct right uh-huh so like they weren't in charge of making up stories no although they did sure they did uh change them but you know naming just may not have been their forte yes exactly the myth of blood libel. Libel? Am I saying that right? L-I-B-E-L? I'm as assuming. Was widely propagated during the Middle Ages and is still used to vilify Jews today. The children in these two stories are also acquired in, in exchange for large sums of money. Jewish wealth and greed are also common anti-Semitic tropes. These tropes appear in The Jew Among Thorns and The Good Bargain. In both stories, a Jewish man is 
depicted as a deceitful uh, person for the sake, who's deceiving people for the sake of money. In the former, the man admits to stealing money and is executed instead of the protagonist in the story. In the latter, the Jewish man is found to be deceitful in order to be rewarded as a sum of money. The specific deceit is irrelevant, and here, too, the protagonist triumphs over the Jew. All of these stories paint Jews as antagonistic, whether during the murderous riots, deceit, or greed. Anti-Semitism in folklore has contributed to the popularization of anti-Semitic tropes uh, and misconceptions about the Jewish faith, but the Nazi party was particular, particularly devoted to the Grimm's uh, collected uh, stories. According to uh, author Elizabeth Dalton, quote, Nazi... Uh, enshri- Nazis enshrined the Kinder und Hausmachen as virtually a sacred text, end quote. Wow. Yeah, well, yikes. That's terrifying. The Nazi party decreed that even that every household should own a copy of Kinder und Hausmachen. So that's not great. Not exactly people you want to endorse you. Ultimately, and to wrap things up for today, I will be reading a list of stories that were published in the first edition of the book. Okay, okay. So we have The Frog King, which we are familiar with. Yep. Cat and Mouse in Partnership, which seems like a prelude to Toad and Frog, Frog and Toad, right? The Cat and Mouse in Partnership. Or Tom and Jerry. Seems like a gay thing. Feels very gay to me. The story of the youth who went forth to learn what fear was. Huh. Mm-hmm. The boy who harnessed the wind. Mm-hmm. Which in German is Machen wie ein der Auswag aus Fischen zu lernen. Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gesundheit. The Wolf and Seven Young Kids. Ooh. Der Wolf und die Siebsen Jungen Gabel. Geisle. I don't know how to say that. I was really hoping you were about to say goblins. I was like, I had no idea that was a German word. The double S is an umlaut, Uh which looks like a B, kind of. Yep, yep. Not an umlaut. It's not an umlaut. Umlauts are the two dots over. I don't remember what that one's called, though. The double S. Do you want me to Google it real quick? That's okay. Okay. Um, The three little men in the wood. Sounds gay. The three spinning woman. Not women. Woman. Sounds gay. The three, uh, the three snake leaves, the white snake, the straw, the coal, and the bean. Huh. The fisherman and his wife. Not gay. Not gay. That one, (laughs) I'm going to say no. Though the fisherman could be a man, a woman, or a trans person, or a queer person in general. Sure. Who are we? Uh, the brave little tailor. Not the brave little toaster, but the brave little tailor. That I'm going to go ahead and say the Brave Little Toaster was based on. Mm-hmm. The Mouse, the Bird, and the Sausage, which um, in German is Von der Muchen, Walschen, and der Bratwurst. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you didn't know you'd get to bring out your German for oh, a podcast it's not episode. Great. It's not good. It's not good. The Seven Ravens. The Devil with Three Golden Hairs. Intriguing. The Girl Without Hands. The Tailor in Heaven. The Wedding of Mrs. Fox. 
Sounds like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I know. The Godfather. I had no idea. I mean, don't ask me if it's the same one. I'm going to go ahead and assume (laughs) it is. The Six Wands. Snow White, of course. The Golden Bird. The Dog and the Sparrow. The Two Brothers. The Little Peasant. The Queen Bee. And the Three Fathers. And it just goes on and on and on about uh, just just all the, most the different bland numbers names, and all the family members. How many of them were there? <laughs> um, Who were they married to? Exactly. It's an interesting. It's an interesting book. But what I what I've taken away from the Brothers Grimm is that it was a bunch of nerds. Yep. Who wanted like their lifelong work was to do a dictionary. Mm-hmm. Didn't get that done, but they they did want to take works that they felt were particularly German. Um, but they also, you know, they basically st- stole a lot of stories from a lot of other places right. that they felt had German um, ties, ties or and moral, moral, yeah, moral yeah. ties, I guess. Um, so... Super interesting. They lived long lives into their 70s, which oh, at the good. time was far. A long life, yep. Um, Jacob never married, but his younger brother did, and they all lived together, and they were basically just obsessed with each other and were good friends forever. Oh, um, so wholesome. I think what they've done is very, uh, you know, important for American culture and... You know, a lot of the bedtime stories that we read our children or were read to us come from the Brothers Grimm. And I'm glad we could talk briefly about them today. Me too. The more joyful, you know, stories. Right. I would never cut off my heel. No, no. Um, So The Little Mermaid, which was written by Hans Christian Andersen, kind of about the same time. He was Danish, not German. Mm-hmm. But um, at the end of The Little Mermaid, she dies and turns into sea foam. I forgot about that. Yep. So, also, like, just a similar vibe. Yeah. All around. Yeah. For sure. So, intersections. Some of these seem super obvious, like mirroring the values of the time and um, creating stories or sharing stories with children that are either trying to teach them something or expose them to something. Um, what do you think? I I completely agree. Yeah, that feels super obvious to me. Yeah. And then just seeing how those stories have changed throughout history versus, like, the, the stories as they were originally written don't mirror the values that we have today. Correct. Um, so Disney changed them and is continuing to change them. Um. Like, even thinking about, um, like, a lot of the Cinderella stories. So, we have the original OG Cinderella, written by the Brothers Grimm, where the sisters' eyes are gouged and their heels are cut off and, like, all of that. And then we get the OG Disney version, where Cinderella is still pretty helpless. But even Cinderella has changed as we've gone on and becomes a more well-rounded character and... And ever after, like, she is steadfast and headstrong. Mm -hmm. And so, like, just seeing the different iterations of these works um, play out over time is really interesting. And the values that they reflect of each time in which they've come out. I couldn't have said it better myself. 
thank you so much. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, if you guys think of more additional intersections, hit us up on Instagram. We will be posting a thing in our stories the day this comes out. So look out for that. Let us know what you think. Uh, we've got all of our season two cocktails on our Patreon. So if you feel so inclined, go over and check that out. If you haven't left us a five-star review, what are you waiting for? We would love to have you join the ranks of our other five-star reviews. And we might even read it on the show. That's exactly right. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.